The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles again today and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning over there, I just want to comment on the sin leading unto death. Um, Just quickly to say that you'll notice in the very next verse, it says, He who is born of God does not sin. And I I believe that what John is talking about is he does not commit the sin unto death, and that the sin unto death in in, uh, John's epistle is talking about these false teachers who had once professed faith in Christ and had rejected the Christian faith and were heretics who were preaching that Jesus was not the Christ. And so he's really warned, uh, the sin I believe he's talking about is the sin of final apostasy. And he underscores that those who are born of God do not commit that sin. And so that text is actually, as, as Rob has underscored there, it, is, it supports the doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of believers. Uh, so that, that text gives people tr- trouble sometimes, and they wonder what that's talking about. I believe if you read the whole epistle, you'll see in the context that's what it's talking about. All right, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Uh, we'll read again today. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Father, help us now as we seek to open up your word. Grant the ministry of your spirit to give us understanding that you might be exalted and that Christ would be exalted in our midst and that we would be instructed and helped so that we might live in such a way as to bring honor and glory to you who have loved us and saved us by your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are returning again this morning to a series of messages that we've been in for a few weeks now entitled, Recovering God's Design for Humanity in a World Gone Mad. And this is just a brief series, uh, probably be maybe four more messages, and then God willing we'll return back to our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. But so far, our focus has been on the account God's Word gives us of man's creation. And we've learned about the uniqueness of man as God's highest and special creation, superior to the rest of God's creatures, the identity of man as created in the image of God, the constitution of man as a body-soul entity. And then for the last three messages, our focus has been on the sexual distinction of man or of mankind. Verse 27, so God created man in his uh, own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them, and we've been talking about that and focusing on what Scripture teaches about that distinction between male and female. But now this morning, still under our theme of God's design for humanity in a world gone mad, I want us to move on from our consideration of man himself, the male and the female, to take up some of the foundational purposes, relationships, and activities for which God has created us. 
Now, of course, ultimately, God made us for his glory, to show forth his praises as, you remember, we've seen as his royal image bearers upon earth, uh, uh, governing the, the world, the creation that he has made, and to enjoy as such intimate and delightful communion with him. As is stated in the answer to the first question in the Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what exactly are the boundaries and, uh, and the structures, the relationships, and uh, the functions within which God has declared that we are to do this and to live in this world, even as we see them here in the beginning of the creation, and as we look at God's design for us. Well, this brings us to what has commonly been called the creation ordinances, the creation ordinances. Now, what are creation ordinances? Well, this is language that's uh, used uh, sometimes to describe those laws and directives that God gave to mankind at the very beginning, before the fall. And these are sometimes summarized under four headings. They can be summarized in various ways, but basically four headings. There's the procreation command or the procreation ordinance. We're talking about procreation. We're talking about uh, sexual reproduction. You'll note at the beginning of verse uh, uh, 28 of chapter 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Then there's the ordinance of labor. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Also, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And then there's the Sabbath ordinance, Genesis 2.3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, which means set it apart as special and holy, because that in it he rested from all his work which he had done, and then fourthly, there's the marriage ordinance, the ordinance of marriage, Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, all of that is in addition to that unique probationary test prohibition given to Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have the ordinance of procreation, work, the weekly Sabbath, and marriage. Now, a careful consideration of these is very important for several reasons. First of all, they reveal to us those functions, activities, and relationships that God has intended and purposed for man from the beginning. They tell us what we are made for, as it were. They tell us precisely how it is that man, as created in the image of God, is intended to represent God and to glorify and to enjoy him in this spectacular world that God has made. A second reason these creation ordinances are important is they were given before there ever was an Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant. In other words, these ordinances are given to man as man, not merely to the nation of Israel, to man as created in the image of God, and thus they are relevant to all men. And let me just say here as well that we also learn here that even in a perfect world where Adam and Eve had no sin nature, they still needed directives to tell them what God wanted them to do and how they were to live. 
Uh, you know, some people have the idea that, that there's this doctrine out there that once you become a Christian, you're a believer, you don't need God's laws anymore, you don't need commands anymore, that you'll just have this spiritual, because the Spirit is living within you, producing love for Christ in your heart, that you'll just know what to do and how to do the right thing without any directives from God. Well, if that was not true of Adam and Eve, even before sin entered into the world, when Adam and Eve didn't have sinful inclinations and the sin nature, how much more is that, is, is, is that not correct when it comes to us, that we need God's directives to direct us? So did Adam and Eve, even before the fall in the Garden of Eden. And then another reason, thirdly, that they're very, very important is because of the indications in Scripture that whatever was ordained at creation continues in force. That which is creational is perpetual, at least until the age to come. Even though sin has entered in after the fall, those ordinances established by God at creation continue in force. Now, it's true that they have been affected at certain points by the fall, as we're going to see. And we might even say that they've been modified in terms of their ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of these activities. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you see, Adam, before the fall was acting as the federal head and representative of the entire human race that would spring from him. And he was under a covenant, covenant of works, in which he must perfectly obey these mandates, together with the test command regarding the forbidden fruit. And he was to obey them with a view to attaining and entering into the eternal rest, the eternal Sabbath of glorification for himself and his descendants. But Adam failed in the garden by eating from the forbidden tree, and by doing so, he plunged himself and all of his descendants into sin and brought a curse upon the earth and upon all mankind from which we can never deliver ourselves. But praise God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, became man, and he came as the second Adam and the last Adam, the federal head of a new humanity. And it's only the second Adam. Adam, the Lord Jesus, who by his perfect sinless obedience and atoning death on the cross has obtained eternal life and glory for sinners who trust in him. Nevertheless, even though sin has entered in and eternal life and glory now can never be obtained by our own works, these creation mandates still continue as the expression of God's will for mankind and as a rule of life for God's redeemed people. Take, for example, Jesus' teaching on marriage. You remember when the Pharisees came to him with questions about divorce. What did Jesus do? Well, he referred them to the account of creation. Matthew 19, 4 to 6, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees, you remember, responded to, uh, by appealing to the Mosaic Civil co Code. The Mosaic Law did not condone divorce, but it did regulate divorce. It permitted divorce, and it regulated it so as to protect uh, the victim of divorce. The woman norm usually was the woman. And so the Pharisees responded, they appealed to the Mosaic Code, and they said, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And they put her away. And Jesus again appeals to the creation ordinance. 
He says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus defends the sanctity of the one man, one woman, lifetime marriage commitment by directing us back to the creation ordinance. Now, what does this say to us? It reminds us that what is creational is perpetual. You may remember Jesus also appeals to the creation ordinance of the Sabbath when he was correcting the Pharisees because of their false and their overly harsh and legalistic interpretations and and applications of the Sabbath law. He said to them, the Sabbath was made or was created for, didn't say Israel, for man, not man for the Sabbath. He appeals to the creation ordinance. The Apostle Paul often does this in his teaching. You may remember we saw this last week. We saw how Paul appeals to the creation order, for example, when he's describing the distinctive roles of men and women in the church and in the family. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15, you remember we saw that he roots his arguments in the order of creation. And the New Testament is also clear that the labor ordinance, work, uh, that was given at creation, it continues this day. We're told that we are to labor with our hands, doing that which is good, that we might be able to provide for those that we are responsible for and be able to give to those who are in need. That labor ordinance carries on into the New Testament. And Paul also appeals to the creation account when he speaks of marriage and when he speaks of the high calling of motherhood. So what was ordained at creation still continues today as God's will for mankind. Well, with this introduction, I want to take up this morning with the first of the creation ordinances, the ordinance of procreation. And I will try to open this up under three headings. First, the command itself. Second, a balancing caution with reference to this command. And then third, a question sometimes raised by this command. So first of all, the command itself. After the account of the creation of man in God's image, male and female, in verses 26 to 27, we now come to verse 28. And what is the first blessing and directive that is given to man? Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So we have this command to procreate or to reproduce. That's what procreate, that's what we're talking about. The man and the woman were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then as we come to chapter 2, we see that this mandate is connected to the institution of marriage. Marriage is the ordained context within which alone this command to procreate is to be brought to effect. This is one of the tasks given to the man and something he obviously could not do alone without a helper suited to him, chapter 2, verse 18. So God made the woman and ordained the institution of that leaving and cleaving one flesh, lifetime covenant companionship called marriage, as we see in chapter 2, verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken Out of the man, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, God willing, we'll look at the marriage ordinance later. But one of the purposes of marriage is the fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. It's not the only purpose 
or even the most fundamental and important purpose, as we're going to see, God willing, but it is one of the purposes of marriage, to reproduce within the context of the stable, nurturing environment of a lifetime marriage commitment. And then let me also add that the ordinance of procreation should never be separated from uh, the later emphasis of Scripture on the responsibility of parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So it's not just a matter of producing babies. It's a matter of producing babies who are then to be raised in a stable home environment in which they are given godly and biblical instruction. In the words of the prophet Malachi, but God, but did God make them one, talking about the man and the woman, the husband and wife, having a remnant of the spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. So this is one of the purposes of marriage, procreation, and the raising of a godly offspring. And this is carried into the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.14, I desire that their younger women marry, bear children. Paul joins the idea of being married with the activity of bearing children. We see the same thing in Titus 2, verse 4. Paul tells Titus that the older women in the church are to admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, what does that imply? Well, the assumption is that from the perspective of Scripture, young women who have Husbands ordinarily will have children. The married state under normal circumstances is a state in which there is procreation. Well, I trust we see then that procreation is ordained of God from the beginning and continues as one of the purposes of marriage. Indeed, God's word teaches us that children are a great blessing from the Lord. Not a hassle, not a curse but a great blessing. Turn over to Psalm 127. Most of us are probably familiar with this this text. Picking up at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, I think the attitude that's reflected in these verses about children is is far different from the kind of selfishness that's so often reflected in modern Western society when it comes to children. A selfishness that regards children as a curse instead of a blessing or as as a hindrance to self-fulfillment and personal pleasure, you know, maybe if you want to have children at some point to make, maybe help your marriage out a little bit or something of that nature, but they're seen often as, as and depicted often as, as really a, a hindrance, a, a curse more than a blessing. But God's Word says children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward, and that's how we ought to view our children, and that's how married couples ought to view the prospect of having children. And notice he speaks of children as arrows in the hand of a warrior. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. That's the way we should think of our children. 
They're like arrows, weapons in our hands. And our responsibility as fathers and mothers is to shape and to straighten those arrows and to seek to properly adjust the fletchings and to sharpen the heads so that the right time we might shoot them out at the enemies of Christ and the truth. A man of war in those days was glad to have arrows that could fly where he was not able to reach with his own hands. Well, our children are arrows that can go out from us to hit the mark and to accomplish for Christ more than we alone by ourselves could ever do. Think about it. What greater opportunity could any Christian have to have a positive influence on the world and on the souls of men for the glory of God than through the raising of children? Those multiple little minds are put into our hands to lead to Christ and to shape and to sharpen and to send out into the world. And then one other comment about this passage. Notice again what God says in verse 5. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Now, now certainly a statement like this indicates, at least strongly hints at the fact, wouldn't you say, that it's a good thing and a desirable thing to have many children and not just a few. Isn't that what the text implies? Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. And if our attitude is cursed or miserable is the man who has his quiver full of them, then our attitude does not reflect God's perspective. And it may be the indication of unmortified self-centeredness. So we should beware of the anti-child kind of mindset that's often found in our culture today. A mindset that views them as a nuisance, a hindrance to self-fulfillment. Now, procreation is a creation ordinance, and one of the God-ordained purposes of marriage is to have and to raise children in a stable home environment, and they're to be received and, and, and recognized as a blessing from the Lord, and happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Well, so much for the command itself. Now I want to give, secondly, a balancing caution concerning this command. Now, thankfully, in some Christian circles, and I think this is generally true among Reformed Baptists, there is a proper recognition that much of the modern attitude toward having children is wrong and unbiblical. Thankfully, there are many Christians today who would say, amen to everything that I have said thus far in this sermon. So that's why I believe we need to give a balance and caution. There's always the danger of the pendulum effect. There may be some Christians who, having embraced this teaching and in reaction to the bad attitude of our culture toward having children, may have gone to the opposite extreme. The extreme of at least seeming to think that having children is an unqualified blessing no matter what, and under all circumstances. But we need to understand that a large number of children or any number of children is not inevitably a blessing. When the Scripture says, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them, the assumption is that those arrows are indeed being straightened and properly adjusted and sharpened. In other words, the assumption is that these are children who are being carefully brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and are being provided for. You see, this is the part that some Christians, I'm afraid, don't see as clearly as they should. 
While children are intended to be a blessing and not a curse, the fact is they can be a curse if those children are, not, if those children are neglected. And in that regard, as another has put it, we might say it this way, a large number of children is a large blessing or a large curse. They are intended to be a blessing and to make happy the man who has his quiver full of them, but they can be the source of unspeakable sorrow and grief. Witness David weeping over his son Absalom. You remember when we were studying the life of David? What, a, what an awful scene is, as he wept over his wayward son Absalom. Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son makes a glad father but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs 17, 21, He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Proverbs 17, 25, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Think with me. What does it take to have a large number of children? Well, all it takes is a physically mature, sexually active male and female. But what does it take to have children who are a large blessing? To have children, many, or even all of whom, do indeed turn out to be like arrows in the hand of a mighty man, and who do indeed truly bring joy to the husband and wife who have their quiver full of them. Well, from the parents, it takes large doses of of selflessness, patience, sacrifice, and hard work. Years of hard work. Now, of course, ultimately, only God can soften and regenerate the hearts of our children and draw them effectually to Christ. And though we may do the best that we possibly can, that does not guarantee that they will all turn out well. Well, God through the prophet said that he was a perfect father to Israel, and yet they have rebelled against me. Also, there are sometimes terrible parents, and yet in God's mercy, some of their children turn out well, anyhow. But these are exceptions to the general rule. This is not ordinarily the case. Yes, God must awaken our kids. He must give them the new birth. He must draw them to Christ. It's his work, but it is his ordinary nature to work through the means he has appointed. And it's only when those means are faithfully used that we have biblical warrant to hope for good results. But when those means are neglected, to expect good results is sinful presumption. It is the general rule that a child left to himself brings to his mother shame. Proverbs 29, 15. So what am I getting at? What am I trying to say? Well, having children, having many children, is not automatically a blessing. The blessing the Bible associates with having children involves much more than simply the biological capacity to reproduce. A commitment to the blessing of having multiple children means a commitment to many years of self-sacrifice, faithful discipline, careful instruction, love, loads and loads and loads of patience, sometimes a whole lot of stress, 
tenderness and hard work. Again, quoting another, commenting on this, some husbands think they have a commitment to the biblical view of family just because they are male, opinionated, and dislike condoms. And we might add, some wives think they have a commitment to a biblical view of marriage just because they get pregnant a lot. But as I'm sure you know, there's more to it than that. Again, quoting, our Lord spoke of the folly of a man who undertook the building of a tower without the resources to complete the task. How much greater is the folly when the task undertaken is one that involves one's own family? Presumption in the conception of large numbers of children is no virtue. Now, I'm not saying all of this to contradict everything I just got through saying in the first point, right? I'm not trying to discourage having children. I'm not trying to discourage having many children. I mean, you should know that, right? I have six kids, okay? I know what it's like to have people look at you sideways, like, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Why would anybody have six kids? I, 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 we've lived with that. I understand that. I'm not talking as someone who doesn't have experience. I have six kids ranging from 12 years old to 31 years old, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trying to discourage having children. But I am seeking to give a balance and caution because as it is with so many biblical truths, the truth is like a razor's edge. And there's the double danger of falling off on the left or to the right. The first danger is to adopt the mindset of our culture and to resist the responsibility of having children. But those of us who would reject that attitude, we then have to ask ourselves the question, what will our temptation be? And this is where the second danger comes in. While professing to embrace the scriptural teaching, we can bring great reproach upon it and upon Christ himself and the gospel by having large numbers of children that we then fail to provide for and properly to care for and to bring up in the fear of the Lord. So we consider the procreation command and a balancing caution. <clears throat> well, this almost of necessity leads us now thirdly to a question. All of this raises. And here I want to be careful because I know now that I'm going to be dealing with a hot potato. Uh, that can be a source of controversy. And the question is this, in light of what we've seen concerning the ordinance of procreation, the blessing of having children, and also the balance and caution, in light of these, is it ever okay for couples to take steps to have fewer children than the maximum possible? Or another way of saying it, is it ever okay for Christians to use some form of birth control? Now, again, I know this is a very emotional issue for many Christians, so I want to try to be as sensitive as I can as I try to address this. I have no desire to be controversial. I'd rather just skip over this question. I was saying to somebody this week, you know, this is like one of the last things I want to preach on on a Sunday morning, but I, part of me wouldn't even deal with this. But, but since I'm sure... The procreation command raises this question in the minds of some of you, and it's a question that many Christians have. I think it would be irresponsible of me to simply ignore it, and plus we have a lot of young couples in our church right now who are starting out their families. Now, my perspective on this may not be the same as every person here today, uh, 
And if you differ with me, that's okay. If you think I'm far out left field, that's okay. However, I do ask you to please hear me out, okay? Again, the question is, may Christians use birth control? Is it ever wrong to take, ever take steps to limit the number of children that you have or to try to space them out or to plan when to attempt to have them? Well, let me begin by saying that it is clearly wrong to do anything that is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. You shall not kill. There are forms of birth control that involve destroying an already fertilized egg uh, or uh, an embryo after conception. Anything that takes a human life after conception is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. You shall not kill. But what about other forms of birth control, those which prevent conception from taking place? Is it ever morally permissible for married couples to use them? Well, I just want to kind of throw, throw it right out on the table at the very beginning from the outset that I don't believe as a pastor that I have biblical warrant to bind anyone's conscience on that question. I respect those who may differ with me, but here's why I'm not willing to say that it is wrong to use means to limit the number of children you have. Here's why. First of all, there's the biblical doctrine of liberty of conscience. Now, that doctrine is well summarized in chapter 21, paragraph 2 of our confession, which reads, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Now, the emphasis is that the scriptures alone are the ultimate standard of ethical activity. The Christian is free to do something so long as it is not contrary to the word of God, and his conscience is not bound by requirements that are not contained in the word of God. Now, this principle tells us that if we argue that under all circumstances the use of birth control is wrong for the Christian, and we seek to bind men's consciences to that, then we must also be able to show that the Bible does indeed forbid the use of birth control. Well, I've never found anywhere that the Bible specifically forbids taking steps to have fewer children than the maximum possible. In fact, I would argue that a person will search in vain for any direct teaching at all on the subject of birth control. And by the way, I hate to even bring this up, but the one instance where the guy, I don't want to say this in a public thing, where God struck the guy dead, that wasn't why he struck him dead. He struck him dead because he wasn't fulfilling Levitical command to raise up a, chi- a child to his dead brother. That was the issue. Well, it didn't have anything to do with birth control. He said, what are you talking about? Well, you have to go read it yourself because I'm not going to say it right now. Okay. Now, if I'm correct in that, that you would search in vain for any direct teaching on the subject of birth control, if I'm correct in that, this means that this question of the use or non-use of birth control is a matter of liberty of conscience for the Christian. Let each couple be fully persuaded in their own mind as to what they should do in their particular circumstances. I have no authority to bind the conscience of others in the sphere of their marriage and family by a command not contained in Scripture. And therefore, it's perfectly legitimate in a congregation our size for there to be Christians who have different convictions about this and different practices. 
And that's okay. That's okay. Another foundational issue that has bearing on this question. Secondly, there's the creation ordinance itself as it's given to us here in the opening text. If you look back at Genesis 1, 28. The creation ordinance of procreation is given at the beginning of this text. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So we have this very clear command to be fruitful and multiply. As we've seen, here God tells us that one of the purposes of marriage is procreation, having children. Now, most Christians are agreed that this is an important purpose of marriage. And as I hope we've seen, we should all be agreed that children are a great blessing from the Lord. Well, this text is also probably the major text pointed to by those who oppose the use of birth control of any kind. But here's my question. Does this command really forbid birth control of any kind or under any circumstance? No, it doesn't. The command is not have as many children as you possibly can. can. The command is simply be fruitful and multiply. To make this command say that Christian couples must have as many children as they can or that they they must never engage in any kind of stewardship or planning with respect to the number of children that they have is to go beyond the actual command itself. The command simply says be fruitful and multiply. Now, if I have three children... Am I being fruitful and multiplying? Yes. If I have six children, am I being fruitful and multiplying? Yes. Perhaps I'm being more fruitful. But either way, I'm doing what the mandate says. But there's more. There are other realities that have to be considered when it comes to applying this command to any given situation. Okay? I'll mention three of them. Number one, we must keep in mind that this mandate was originally given before the fall of man, okay? It continues after the fall, but it was originally given before the fall. And since the fall, there are a number of factors that have entered into the world and into human experience that were not there before. Several of these are mentioned, do you remember, in in Genesis 3 when God told Adam, of the curse that they they had brought upon the human race. For example, there's the curse upon childbirth. It talks about there are the physical pains and the dangers that are now associated with childbirth. Also, the realities of physical weakness, sickness, and death because of the curse. Also, there are the difficulties that the curse has brought upon man's work. You remember that it's mentioned. His efforts to provide for his, himself, and for his family. All of those factors have now entered in. Now, let me ask you, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, would Eve have ever been in danger of harming her physical health by having lots of children? No. But that's not always the case now under the curse. Would Adam have ever had any difficulty adequately providing for lots of children? No, but again, that's not always the case now under the curse. You see, these are factors that have been introduced as a result of the fall. And we have to keep that in mind when we apply this passage. Number two, this command is a general... Now, let me say it before you, before you faint. I'll explain what I mean, all right? This command is a general command that does not necessarily apply in the same way to everyone. 
Pastor, how can you say that? Well, think with me. Does God, in an absolute sense, require every man or woman to get married? No, though marriage is one of the creation ordinances. Read Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 where he speaks of singleness as also being a good thing for some people. Singleness can be good and beneficial in various ways. And in the providence of God, there are some Christians who never get married. Well, if it's God's will of providence for some people to never marry, obviously that means it is his plan for them to never have children, which shows that though the marriage ordinance and the procreation ordinance here in Genesis 1 and 2 are general mandates for the human race, they do not necessarily apply to every individual human being in the same way. Again, just as it is with marriage. Over in Genesis 2, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Generally speaking, it is good, it is better for most people to get married. But that's not an absolute thing because we also find it stated later in Scripture that for some, singleness is good. And in fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, there may be circumstances in which it's the better part of wisdom to hold back from taking on family responsibilities. Read that chapter. He speaks of what he calls the present distress, in light of the present distress. And he says, in light of the present distress, whatever that present distress was, we're not told. Whether it was persecution, whether it was something else that was happening, we don't know what he's talking about. But he argues that in light of it, whatever those circumstances may be, and, you know, God doesn't tell us, so... And I think that's, there's wisdom there. That there's, it could be a number of things, general circumstances that in light of which it's better for some not to take on family responsibilities. He doesn't say they're sinning if they do or if they don't. But he does allow for the fact that there may be circumstances where a Christian determines that it's better in his case not to do so. Now, if that's true of marriage, which implies with it, the having of children, then why would the same liberty and for the same reasons not be given to those who are married when it comes to how many children they seek to have? And you can think of all kinds of circumstances. Think about missionaries going onto some difficult, hard field of service, pioneer missionaries. A man may choose not to get married. Or if he is married, they may choose not to have very many children at all. There's all kinds of circumstances that one can think of. And Paul says, in the case of the Corinthians, he mentions the present distress. And so we see there that though the the creation ordinance of marriage, the ordinance of, of procreation, are general requirements for the human race, they don't apply to everybody in every situation in exactly the same way. A third consideration. When it comes to how we apply this creation ordinance, you notice if you look again at at, at Genesis, our text, verse 28, that the directive to be fruitful and multiply is not the only directive in this mandate. He goes on to speak of subduing the earth and exercising dominion over the creation. Look at verse 28. Then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, how does that relate when wrestling with this question of birth control? 
Well, wherever you personally land on this issue, it reminds us that it's not really sound to make the argument that natural or just letting things, as it were, take their course is always right or better. You see, there's what's, what may be called the natural law argument. This is one of the arguments that's used to argue that it's a sin under all circumstances for a Christian couple to use any form of birth control. The natural law argument, it goes like this. It's the argument that since sexual intercourse naturally leads to conception, we have a moral obligation not to impede that result. But this argument has serious problems. It's a faulty argument. It's also natural for hair to keep growing and to become indefinitely long. Does that mean it's wrong to cut your hair? Or to shave your head? There are many things we do that, in a sense, are contrary to what is natural, but that doesn't mean they are immoral. Think with me. Again, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gave them this mandate to subdue the earth and so on. He didn't say, now, Adam and Eve, here's what I want you to do. Just leave everything as it is. Let it all be natural. No, man was given the commission to harness the resources of the world that God had made, to manipulate them, if you will, to subdue them, to control them for his benefit and for his glory. And in the garden, in the garden, Adam wasn't just to let the plants just keep growing. He was to tend the garden, and he was to keep it. And he was to, well, I won't get into all this, to extend the garden temple over the whole earth. Man was to exercise stewardship. Even in a perfect, sinless world before the fall, Adam was not just to leave everything natural. He was given a task to subdue the earth, to tend the garden, keep it so on. Man was given authority over the creation to organize and control and develop its resources for his and others' good. But some Christians, some Christians seem to have gotten this idea that anything that is not natural is bad. If, it, if man has anything to do with it, it's bad. So all they will eat is natural food. Oh, they'll never go to the doctors, never use medicines, or anything that man has made or man has manipulated. Now, now I'm not saying that it's wrong to go, you know, go natural or organic in your diet. I'm sure there's, there's, I know there's good arguments that could be made to be careful about medicines, to use, I'm not saying it's wrong to use homeopathic remedies and so on, but I'm just trying to make the point that if you're doing that because you believe that somehow natural is holy and something that's been manipulated by man is sinful, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's not biblical. And the point I'm trying to make is that it's not bad for man to exercise authority over the creation in a responsible way. Now, this principle, I believe, has a very direct bearing on this question of birth control. In fact, I was reading one Christian writer who comments on this mandate to subdue the earth in in application to this very question. And he says, this means that we are to act as organizers and controllers of creation under God in every area of life. We may not serve as passive creatures who blindly allow creation to, quote, order, unquote, itself, or assume that God will carry out the responsibilities that he has given to us. Many Christians claim to trust the Lord 
for events that God has given humans authority over. To live this way is to live irresponsibly. It is to act contrary to the cultural mandate. So there's the doctrine of liberty of conscience. There's a proper understanding and application of the creation mandate in its overall context. And then one other issue that has a bearing on this question. Thirdly, is the command of 1 Timothy 5.8 to provide for one's own. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Work is the God-ordained means for providing for our needs and for those for whom we are responsible. And here Paul says that anyone who not, does not provide for his own family is worse, worse than an unbeliever. How could that be? Well, you know, unbelievers even can tend to have a kind of a, an innate God-created sense of the, the importance and the responsibility of taking care of your own family. But to see a believer who's not doing that is a great blot upon the gospel and in some ways is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. Now, one writer commenting on this verse makes, I think, these very helpful observations. He points out, that by implication, this command also forbids us carelessly and willfully to place ourselves in situations in which we cannot support our family, even though we may have some form of employment, for the outcome is the same. And he mentions several obvious examples. We may not gamble away our paycheck or spend it on luxuries when our children have no food. Furthermore, he points out that this also implies that we must not carelessly take on obligations that cause us to be unable to provide for our families. One application of this could be to the whole question of whether or not a person should pursue marriage at all. Normally, it is good for a man to marry. It's not good to be alone, Paul says, for the man. But if he has no means to provide for a wife, then he ought to wait until he does, or soon will. Should he just trust God to provide and get married anyhow? No, that would be to tempt God, to bless his irresponsible actions. It's better to get into a position where he'll be able or, or soon able, has a plan in place to provide for his wife before he marries her. I think most Christians, most of us here today, we would all agree with that when it comes to the marriage ordinance. Well, you see, this general principle can be applied to a number of things. In fact, this particular writer goes on to apply this to the procreation ordinance. He says, quoting, If we can see how these principles work together in these circumstances, then we should have no difficulty in seeing how they would provide similar basis for temporarily delaying childbearing. The case envisioned is one in which the married couple desires a family, rejecting all humanistic rationalizations about convenience, career, etc., etc., and rightly so, yet under the immediate circumstances would not be able to provide for a child or another child in violation of 1 Timothy 5.8. Now, what's the standard objection to that kind of reasoning? Well, someone might object by saying, but this shows a, a lack of trust in God, a lack of trust in God's providence. We should trust in God to give us as many children as he chooses and trust that he will give us the means to provide for them. To use any kind of birth control for any reason is to show a lack of faith. 
Well, to that I would say sometimes it may be, but sometimes it may not. Trusting in God's providence does not mean that we throw out the principle of human responsibility. For example, we are to trust God to provide for our needs, but that doesn't mean that we sit at home passively, refusing to work and hoping that like Elijah at the brook Cherith, a bird will fly in the window of our house and drop food into the mouths of our children. Right? We're to trust God with our health, but that doesn't mean we never need to exercise or we can just be reckless with our bodies and that's okay. No, as the catechism so well summarizes it, obedience to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, involves using all lawful endeavors to protect our own lives as well as the lives of others. If we were to carry this objection to its logical conclusion, it could just as well be used to argue against locking our homes, saving money for emergencies, wearing safety goggles. We shouldn't do any of these things. We should just trust God. But trusting God and tempting God are not the same thing. Well, again, I know this can be a controversial subject. Really, I want the whole sermon, I really want the sermon to be all about the blessing of having children. I don't want everybody going away thinking, man, this guy thinks we shouldn't have kids. No. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. But I want us to be balanced as a church. I want us to understand all of these factors and to be able to reason these things out biblically. And therefore, we need to understand these balancing cautions. And I've attempted to give you what I believe is a sound biblical answer to the question that's often troubling in the hearts and minds of Christians, this whole question about birth control. These principles I've just laid out before you are enough to convince me that it would not be right for me as a pastor to bind anyone's conscience on this matter. I'm not able to say that under all circumstances, taking steps to have fewer children then the maximum is wrong. I think it's a matter of liberty of conscience for every Christian couple to decide for themselves, weighing all of the factors that I've mentioned this morning. But whatever decisions any of us make with respect to this, let those decisions not be based purely on selfish considerations. We must remember, as we've seen, that having children, raising them for God is one of the purposes of marriage. How many you seek to have is one thing. But remember, children are a great blessing. They're to be viewed that way because the Bible views them that way. This is the way God views them. And it's potentially one of the best ways a Christian couple has to have a positive influence upon the society long after you and I have gone on to be with the Lord. And really, this is to be our great concern, our it's, it's, the, it's the heart here. It's, this is our great concern in all this. As believers, we have experienced and believe in God's love for us in providing for us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who obeyed for us perfectly, who suffered for us on the cross, paying the debt that we owe to the justice of God, who rose again and whoever lives for us to make intercession for us and who will come for us on the last day so that we can live with him forever. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the life that we now live, we are to live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. This is what should govern our perspectives on having children, the decisions that we make about this, and everything else in our lives, the concern to honor and to glorify 
our Savior. Well, may God help us as we continue in this study that um, we will increasingly be a people who indeed do glorify the God who has saved us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your providence we have the opportunity to consider these issues. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, to to listen to your word, to be open to your word. Lord, ultimately, we desire to do what you would have us to do. We want to obey you because we trust in you. You have demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, our Father, it is our joy both to know and to do your holy will. And so we offer up these things, these prayers, in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.